The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil and which he to- at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, and man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has begun already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of the former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. The pre- I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. The next reading is Luke 12:13-21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared. Whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And our final reading is 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 to 19. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at proper time. 
He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honour and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. The word of the Lord. Well, perhaps, uh, like me, you've watched this week in distress, uh, if not downright despair, at the events that have been unfolding in Afghanistan, uh, with the resurgence of the Taliban, uh, the collapse of the government, and all that that entails for some of the poorest, most underprivileged people in the world. And after 20 years of military occupation, uh, the question that seems to be on everyone's lips is, what was the point of it all? What was the point? All the blood, all the treasure, all the aid programs that have come to nothing, all the mission work that's come to an end, all the time, all the effort, the thousands of people who have been killed, the hope that's just been snuffed out, what was the point of it all? What's it all achieved? The Americans are asking it, the Brits are asking it, Australians are asking it, and of course the Afghans are asking it. What's the point of it all? What was the point of it all? I'm not going to talk about Afghanistan today uh, because actually, to be honest, I don't know enough about it. Um, if you want to find out about Afghanistan, go and talk to Phil or Julie. They're the experts uh, on that. Uh, and talk to God, because he is in charge and he can actually do something about it. The thing I do want to say, though, is that that question, what's the point of it all, is not unique to this situation in Afghanistan, is it? It's not unique to the poor or to victims of war. I know that in my work with students at UWA, as some of the most privileged, wealthiest uh, people in one of the most peaceful places in the world, many of them find themselves asking that same question. What's the point of it all? They're not asking it about Afghanistan, but they're asking it about their own lives. What am I doing here? What, what am I aiming for? What's the point of it all? Why are we doing what we're doing? And as Christians, we're not immune from that question either, are we? Why are we doing what we're doing? What are you actually aiming for in life? What is the point of it all? The book of Ecclesiastes is written to help us try and consider those questions. Uh, and today we're going to go through the whole book. Um, it's going to be a quick overview, um, so don't be too alarmed. Um, 
But I think it is a helpful book for helping us think through some of those questions and pointing us towards some of the answers as well. Uh, the first verse of the book hints that Ecclesiastes is written by Solomon. It's introduced as the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Uh, and in chapter 1, verse 12, he says, I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. Uh, and when you put those two verses together, you realise that the only person it can be referring to is Solomon. Because after Solomon, there were sons of David who were kings over Judah in Jerusalem, and there were kings over Israel in Samaria, but Solomon was the only son of David who was king over Israel in Jerusalem. And yet at the same time, it never straight out says that it's written by Solomon. So maybe the teacher is Solomon, maybe he isn't, but either way, we're being positioned to look through Solomon's eyes, to consider how things look from the perspective of the wealthiest, wisest, most successful king in the whole history of Israel. And so it is a little bit surprising, given who's writing it, that the very first thing he says is meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And now, it's, it is worth saying that uh, the translation meaningless or vanity, uh, they're not actually great translations of the Hebrew word here. The Hebrew word hevel um, doesn't mean meaningless. It means something like vapour or mist or steam. Uh, of course, the teacher's using it as a metaphor. It doesn't mean that everything's literally vapour. Um, but when you look at how it's used elsewhere, it seems to be a metaphor for insubstantial. It's something that you can't grab hold of. It slips through your fingers. So what does he mean when he says that everything is vapour, everything's insubstantial? Because this is not just where he starts, it's also where he ends. The teacher's final words in chapter 12, verse 8, are identical to his first words. Vapour, vapour, everything is vapour. Now, you could write that off as the teacher sort of playing devil's advocate. Uh, he's imagining what life might be like without God. But when you get to the end of Ecclesiastes, you get an editor pop in for the last six verses, and he gives his verdict on what the teacher says. Now, come and have a look at it with me. This is chapter 12, verse 9. He says, not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. Now, that's a pretty ringing endorsement, isn't it? What he wrote was upright and true. So what does it mean when the teacher says that everything is vapour? Well, from chapter 1, verse 3, he starts to unpack what he means. Chapter 1, verse 3, what do people gain from all their labours at which they toil under the sun. What's the point of it all? What do we gain from all our work? And the teacher's answer is nothing. Absolutely nothing. There is nothing left over from the business of life. There is no profit from life. Nothing you can take out of it. Verse 4, generations come and generations go, but the, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The world just goes on and on, round and round. 
Nothing's added. Nothing's taken from it. There is no profit. We don't even remember our own ancestors, he goes on to say. I wonder how many of you know the first names of your great-grandparents. We'll do our hands up, shall we? How many of you do know the first name of your great-grandparents? Maybe somewhere but maybe a fifth to a quarter of people know the names of their great-grandparents. That will be your own descendants. They won't even know your first name, most of them. From verse 12 onwards, the teacher tells us about his research project into what can be gained from life. Verse 13, I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun and all of them are vapour, a chasing after the wind. He says that he's super wise, but that doesn't help him get any profit out of life. He's super rich, but that doesn't help either. Chapter 2, verse 10, he says he denied himself no pleasure and he enjoyed his work while he was doing it. But when he sat back to survey it, all the enjoyment just evaporated because there was no lasting profit. He recognises in chapter 2, verse 13, that it's obviously better to be wise than to be a fool, just like light is better than darkness. But in the end, the same fate overtakes them both. And this is really where we get to the heart of Ecclesiastes. Why is it that there is no profit in life? Well, it's because in the end, we all die. As he says in chapter 5, verse 15, everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. Uh, At the time of his death in 1937, John D. Rockefeller, the American oil baron, was worth over $350 billion in today's money. So that's Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world today, and double him. That's how rich this guy was. Quite possibly the richest man who's ever lived. Anyway, the story goes that at his death, a journalist asked Rockefeller's lawyer, how much did he leave? And the lawyer looked at him and said, all of it. He left all of it. And that's true, isn't it? Whether you're John D. Rockefeller, whether you're the poorest Afghan, whether you're someone like you or me, we leave all of it. And so if the result is always the same, whether I'm a good person or a bad person, whether I'm wise or foolish, whether I'm hardworking or lazy, if the result is always the same, what's the point of any of it? And yet he says, there is something. So far, God's been pretty much out of the picture in Ecclesiastes. He's only been mentioned in chapter 1, verse 13, what a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. But in chapter 2, verse 24, the teacher notices that actually the ability to eat and drink and find satisfaction in our work, that also comes from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? He recognises that God won't let us take any profit out of life. But he does give us a portion within life. There is a way to live well within life. 
says, to the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. Uh, I think Jesus picks this up in the parable of the rich fool from Luke chapter 12 that we read before, uh, where the ground of a certain man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones and then I'll store up my surplus grain and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink and be merry. Uh, The rich man quotes the first half of a famous proverb. uh, Eat, drink and be merry. You know what the second half is? For tomorrow we die. Yeah. But he's too much of a fool even to get to the second half of the proverb. But that's what happens to him. Jesus says, God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? See, the rich man, like the sinner in Ecclesiastes, gathers and stores up wealth only to hand it over to someone else. And what's Jesus' application? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. Jesus is saying this is how to live life, not by being rich towards yourself, storing up stuff that you can't possibly keep. Death will take it all off you. But by being rich towards God. So how do you do that? How do you be rich towards God? Uh, Well, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 starts to show us the way forward. Uh, It begins with that famous poem, There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot. It goes on and on, round and round. It's similar in a way to the poem at the start of Ecclesiastes. But at the end of this poem, the teacher goes back to his original question. What do workers gain from their toil? And he says again that God has laid a burden on the human race. And this time, it's not just death, our inability to take any profit out of life. It's our inability to even master how things go within life. Because he says, look, there are moments where you do just sort of hit the sweet spot in life, don't you? You make the right joke at the right time and everyone packs up laughing and you sit back and you bask in your glory. Well, there are times where you sat down and you cried with a friend who'd been hurt. And it was exactly the right thing to do. But we get it wrong a lot as well, don't we? We go in for the hug with someone only to realise too late that they're not a hugger and you can't pull out and it's, oh, it's horrible, it's awkward, it's terrible. (laughs) Or more seriously... Uh, Neville Chamberlain, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, returning from a meeting with Adolf Hitler and declaring peace in our time. But it wasn't the time for peace. It was a time for war. We don't always get the timing right. And that's the point. Chapter 3, verse 11. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He's also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. We can kind of see that God's got this plan in operation because we feel the moments where sometimes we sync up with it. We feel the times where the gears sort of crunch and we're out of alignment. 
but we never really figure out exactly what's going on. You can never master life. Why has God done this? Why has he made it like this? Is he just messing with us? Is it his way of entertaining himself? No, verse 12, I know that there's nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. Let each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. He says God gives good gifts to us. Happiness, the ability to do good, to eat and drink and find satisfaction in work. These are real blessings. God is not out to get us. He's not out to make our lives miserable. So then why does he make life so unfathomable, so ungraspable, so insubstantial? Well, verse 14, God does it so that people will fear him. That is, so that we will be rich towards him. That he is the one our life is about. That instead of fixing our eyes and pursuing the stuff that we cannot possibly keep, we will fix our eyes on him and pursue him. The one that death cannot take from us. And verse 16 and 17 of chapter 3, the teacher notices something else about life. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity a time to judge every deed. He says there's a time for everything. That's what the poem in chapter 3 was about. But if God's in control, and yet the time for judgment and justice is not now, and it's clearly not, is it, when you look around the world and you see the injustice and wickedness that exists now. If there's injustice and wickedness in our world now, and there's no judgment and justice, Yet there is a time for all things. What does that tell you? (laughs) Well, he says, it tells you that the time for judgment and justice is yet to come. But it will come. So how do you be rich towards God? You fear him. You recognize that he's in control and you're not. He is the master of the world, not us. Death is coming and God is going to judge. And we be content with the good gifts that he gives, food and drink, and finding satisfaction in our work instead of storing up bigger and bigger crops and bigger and bigger barns as though we're going to live forever. That's how we be rich towards God. And I think that's the main argument of Ecclesiastes. Uh, It's sort of the heart of the teacher's sermon. And the rest of the book goes on to apply these three chapters to the rest of life. Uh, And we're going to have a look at that now. We'll go a lot quicker through the rest of the book than we have through the first three chapters. So relax, it's okay. (laughs) Uh, So in chapters four to six, the teacher points out what goes wrong if you ignore his teaching, uh, when instead of fearing God, people live as though they're not going to die and face God's judgment, um, as though they can just sort of store up and accumulate things forever. Uh, For one thing, he points out, we get oppression because people trample over other people to try and acquire more stuff. And we see workaholism, people sort of flogging themselves in the belief that he who dies with the most toys wins. Too foolish to realise that he who dies with the most toys still dies and doesn't get to take his toys with him. 
usually dying miserable and alone, having destroyed the relationships they had in their obsession about getting ahead. People throw their whole lives into getting rich and then they lie awake at night anxious about the stock market crashing. Or worse, God gives them their heart's desire. More houses, more promotions, more overseas holidays, but not the ability to enjoy them. Saying to Stephen the other night, I always think of Richard Branson uh, when I think of this, the head of the Virgin Group. And you see sort of photos of him shooting around on jet skis with a good-looking girl on the back and he's, you know, 80 years old or whatever. And yet the smile is just sort of a bit forced. And you think, you are trying really hard to enjoy yourself and it's just not doing it for you, is it? <laughs> it's tragic. What a miserable existence. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. It's great profit. Godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world and we could take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The teacher urges us to be wise about life. Don't be stupid. Don't waste your life in the pursuit of stuff that you can't keep. But then you could ask, well, hang on a minute, mate. I'm with you so far, but if the outcome is always the same, if we all die, whether we're wise or foolish, why would I make the effort to be wise? Because it does take effort to be wise. Why wouldn't I just be a lazy fool? That seems a lot easier. And in chapters 7 to 10, the teacher sort of tackles that question. Uh, and he says two main things. He says, on the one hand, wisdom is great because it will help you to realise what I've realised, that death is coming and it will strip you of everything. Uh, chapter 7, verse 2, he says, it's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. And actually realising that, he says, will help you to live well in this world. Our wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this. Wisdom preserves those who have it. So on the one hand, wisdom is really valuable. But on the other hand, we mustn't fall back into the trap of thinking that wisdom will let us take some profit out of life. As though if we're just wise enough, or maybe just godly enough, we'll get to keep the house and car when we go. Now it doesn't work like that. It doesn't even guarantee success within life. It's true that if you're wise and righteous, life will generally go better for you than if you're foolish and wicked. But there's no guarantee to it. Chapter 8, verse 14, he says... There's something else vaporous that occurs on the earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is vapour. You can't nail life just by being wise and righteous. It's not a guarantee that life will go well for you. Not because God has lost his grip on the situation, but rather our inability to grasp things, to control things, reminds us that he's in control, not us. 
chapter 8, verse 16, he says, When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe the labour that is done on earth, people getting no sleep day or night, then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, they cannot really comprehend it. And so the question is, if we can't master life and we can't escape death, if we gain nothing from all our labours at which we toil under the sun, well, how should we live? And in the last two chapters of the book, the teacher gives us an answer. Uh, so chapter 11, verse 1, he says, Ship your grains across the sea. After many days you may receive a return. Invest in seven ventures, yes, in eight. You do not know what disaster may come upon the land. In other words, yes, life is unpredictable. It's uncertain. But don't let that paralyse you, he says. Ship your grain across the sea. Get on with it. Make investments. But spread your risk. Invest in seven ventures. Yes, in eight. Diversify your portfolio, he says. Because you don't know what's going to happen. You're not in control. God is. The Apostle James puts it this way in James chapter 4. He says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city and we'll spend a year there, we'll carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist. There's that word from Ecclesiastes again. You're a vapour that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we'll live and do this or that. The teacher is saying that the sovereignty of God is not an invitation to laziness, but it is an invitation to live wisely, recognising that he is Lord and we are not. And that actually, he says, is the secret to enjoying life. Chapter 11, verse 9, You who are young, be happy while you're young, and let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart, and whatever your eyes see, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Uh, it seems to me that uh, most people in Australia sort of think that uh, enjoying your life and remembering that God will judge are sort of mutually incompatible. And really what you want to do is forget that God is going to judge so you can go out and enjoy your life. You can have a good time and live it up. And then, ideally, you convert on your deathbed and so you don't go to hell either. And you get the best of both worlds. You get to enjoy your life instead of it being ruined by God uh, and then you get to avoid hell in the end uh, as well. And the teacher says, look, that gets it completely backwards. No, chapter 12, verse 1, you should remember your creator in the days of your youth before you get too old to enjoy life anymore. He says it's actually in remembering God, in fearing him, that real enjoyment of life becomes possible. Everyone else is rushing around desperately trying to accumulate more and more stuff, sort of distracting themselves from the fact that they can't even keep it trying to prove themselves, trying to create some sense of meaning, trying to feel like they're winning at life. And it's exhausting. It's a terrible way to live. People call it success, but the teacher says, no, it's a colossal failure. Colossal. A miserable life. Full of anxiety and overwork, failed relationships, midlife crises. No, better to heed the teacher and remember 
that everything is vapor. You can't hold on to it. Sooner or later, death is going to take it away from you. Luke tells us that when the resurrected Jesus met some of his disciples on the road to Emmaus, he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Uh, now, I don't know whether Jesus talked about Ecclesiastes there in that uh, conversation with them, but it is interesting to read the book of Ecclesiastes in the light of Jesus. Because when you stop and think about it, Jesus really embodies what the teacher is saying here. It's not just that Jesus <coughs> is the king over Israel in Jerusalem. He actually lives out what the teacher says. Jesus is the one who always lived his life in light of his coming death. And he didn't try to accumulate stuff or to have a great career or marry a supermodel. No, he said, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Instead, he was content to eat and drink and find satisfaction in the work the Father had given him to do. In fact, he says that the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Jesus enjoyed life. It wasn't that life was always easy for him. It certainly wasn't. But he was content with what God gave him, and he enjoyed it. Jesus is actually the wisdom of God come in the flesh. He is the embodiment of Ecclesiastes. And in turning his back on earthly success and instead entrusting himself to the Father, even to the point of death on the cross, he took the death and judgment that we deserve for our sin on himself and he broke the power of death and he set us free. Yeah, it's true, death will still take everything off us. That's a deliberate strategy of God to lead us to fear him, to live for God instead of goods. But we don't need to fear death anymore. Not if we fear God. Because God has entrusted judgment to Jesus, the living one who was dead, but now is alive forever and ever. He holds the keys of death and Hades, and one day he will open their gates and he will raise everyone from the dead and bring his people into a far, far better world than the one that our friends and neighbours and families are so desperately trying to hold on to. The end of the book, the editor says, Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. If you love goods and use God to try and get them, you will ruin your life, says the teacher. You'll ruin your life trying to accumulate more and more of what you cannot keep, and you'll face God's judgment for the contempt that you've shown towards him. But if you love God, you're set free to enjoy the good gifts that he gives without the fear of losing them. You will still lose them, but you don't need to fear that 
because you know that that's not what life was about. In the end, your life is about the giver and not the gifts. He just delights to give them to us. But life is about the giver, not the gifts. What's the point of it all? God is. He's the point of it all. And it's in him that we find real life. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, please uh, forgive us for the times where we've taken the things that you have given uh, us for granted, where we've lived for them instead of living for you. Father, we thank you that Jesus always lived his life for you and that in him we find true life. Please fix our eyes on him so that we might love him and delight in the good things that he gives us, that we might live for you, the true and living God, instead of living for the idols of our world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.